Hello and welcome to Future Says. I'm your host, Sean Lang, and I've spent my entire career implementing complex data analytics software for leading banks, automotive institutions, and engineering firms. Brought to you by Altair, a global leader in computational science and intelligence, Future Says explores how simulation, data, AI, and high-performance computing are transforming the world around us. In each episode, I talk with some of the industry's leading experts to hear how they're using data to spark the world's next generation innovations and shape the future of industries around the globe. With that, let's dive in. My name is Sean Lang. I'm your host for today's episode, and I'm joined by Aiko Yamashita. I'm delighted to be joined by Aiko Yamashita. Aiko is a senior data scientist in the Advanced Analytics Center of Excellence at DNB Bank in Norway. She also holds a PhD in experimental software engineering and is an adjunct associate professor at Oslo Metropolitan University. So quite the CV there, Aiko. Thanks for joining. Thank you very much, Sean, for inviting me. I think it's uh, really nice to be here and um, be talking to you. So Excellent. Very excited for the discussion. So I know, Aiko, you're quite keen to speak about sort of the responsible use of data, of AI, of technology in general. But I always feel that that bios, intro bios, never really reveal enough about the person behind the scenes. So to kick things off, can you maybe introduce yourself more? You know, who really is Aiko? How did you get to, to the position you're in today? Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm kind of a citizen of the world, so to say. My father is from Costa Rica and my mother is Japanese. And uh, they met in San Francisco kind of, you know, towards the end of the 70s. So still a bit of a hippie vibe going on there. So I've been living in different parts of the world. The last 12 years, 13 years, I've been living in Norway, where I came to do my PhD. As a background, I studied computer science because that was something that I was good at. And I thought also that could help me to lift the economy of my family at that time. I mean, uh, we were living in Costa Rica. And uh, yeah, we were a relatively humble family. And I thought, yeah, hell yeah, let's do this. And, and then I, I got this opportunity to do a PhD in Norway on software engineering. And uh, yeah, I, I took it. And that's how I got into data science. So I am, uh, in by heart, I'm a computer geek who went into the whole, um, yeah, journey or the scientific method and data and analysis. And uh, I think that title didn't exist back then when I finished my PhD. And then I started hearing this data science term. And I was like, oh, what is that? I read the description. Oh, this is what I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, well, I started DMB two years ago, almost at the same time as the chief data officer was hired at DNB. So I'm part of this uh, new wave of people with maybe slightly different background who got in there to, yeah, to to, uh, sort of help DNB in their journey into data and lift uh, the business towards AI and all the possibilities that lie behind it. Yeah. I guess for those maybe that on the line that don't know about DNB, for me, DMB is, is one of the biggest banks in Norway, if not the biggest. It's one of the biggest. It's actually the, the biggest in the Nordics right mm-hmm. now, if you look at the market value. Yep. Wow. And, mm-hmm. and maybe unbeknownst to some people as well, for me, it's, it's, it's one of the most advanced technically or, or data-driven banks in Europe. And I know you've been on 
a three-year digital transformation roadmap, which I believe started in 2018. So can you tell people a little more about that and how that is rolled out throughout an institution like DNB? Absolutely. So uh, just to quote uh, Aidan, our chief data officer, I think the three-year strategy has actually had these two components, two main components, which is the first one is more like data governance oriented, how to protect the bank in terms of compliance, in terms of yeah, setting the right foundation to make the best possible reporting and decisions uh, to comply with authorities. I think that that was kind of the first and most important part of the journey. And the second part, or it could also be taken as, as a parallel track, was it to lift the bank, to take off, so to say. Mm-hmm. And that in terms of lifting the organization's ability to act upon data and uh, move away from transactional mindsets where you're focusing more on what happened and maybe also trying to understand why it happened more towards what's going to happen in the future and how to be react fast to those insights. So both getting the foresight and also be able to act upon it. And for that, you need a tremendous organizational change, not only in terms of infrastructure, but also in terms of culture and mindset. And and that was the part where um, I've been trying to uh, support DMB in that journey. Uh, So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because I think descriptive analytics has, as you said, been around for decades. Everybody uses descriptive statistics to report on the past. You then had, you know, predictive analytics. Actually, governments over the last year have been doing so much prescriptive analytics. So the next stage, again, we're predicting what might happen. And based on that, we're prescribing different actions. So we're prescribing the use of face masks. We're prescribing social distancing. As Boris Johnson says in the UK, you know, flatten the sombrero. But, you know, I think people hear a lot about digital transformation roadmap cycle. And I think everybody wants to be more data-driven, but there's always some doubters in an organization that says, okay, we're going to invest all this dollars. What is the real stringent results off the back of it? So can you tell people why you did the digital transformation roadmap and what results, what concrete results have you got off the back? Absolutely. So I think that it was really important to actually start with iterative uh, processes while we are doing all this uh, organizational transformation towards uh, challenging the different business and support units into trying to think differently about the way how they were using data but also the technologies we were also looking into provide concrete outcomes from different initiatives that we'll find identified throughout the DMB and uh, to implement those through our uh, insight platform for analytics, which is basically an ecosystem of different uh, components and different uh, support systems to develop different predictive models and also servicing them uh, throughout the organization. And this is actually uh, sort of a custom-made, in-house custom-made platform that actually leverages the components from uh, Amazon Web Services. So I think it was really important to actually have uh, concrete outcomes coming throughout the way. Uh, some success stories, although maybe not a massive uh, success stories, but at least concrete and, and uh, tangible. And at the same time, to be able to also show the increasing engagement on the cultural transformation. And one example I can give you is that the way how we started with 
or data scientists community. And we started with these meetups, uh, which were monthly. I will integrate different activities from sharing experience from projects to uh, doing hackathons or workshops or courses focusing on different topics that will be network analytics or graph analysis, or could be process mining or could be storytelling throughout visualization. And, and um, it was kind of interesting because actually after uh, the COVID lockdown, we already had the digital infrastructure to carry on our work and to work from home and digital. And it was kind of interesting because that even took a boost on our, our data science uh, meetups and, and uh, has expanded the scope of our audience towards the whole corporate. And this has been exciting and, and uh, really rewarding for us. And also through, we have these programs called upskills and reskill programs where they get different competence beyond what their backgrounds are. So data science upskill programs and data-driven decision-making programs have been rolled out through different parts of the organization. And this seems to have a very, very visible impact on the modus operandi of uh, different teams. And uh, we have had two really positive experiences, one with group audit and another one with the product teams, uh, which are basically this community of uh, IT and business workers who are working with different uh, digital products that DMV offers to personal banking segment or corporate banking. So this is a key aspect in our journey to make it visible, right? Make it tangible and do it stepwise so that people see that there is a progress and we build on that engagement. I think you made a really important point there that at times you can actually benefit from people working from home now. You can do things like a lunch and learn. You can do these meetups in the evening if it's over a beer or anything like this. One of our partners at Alter is a company called Invesco. They've developed a unit called The Dudes, D-U-D-E-S, which is data users and data enthusiasts. I think it's a fantastic concept. <laughs> Again, it's, it's trying to really democratize data throughout the enterprise. That data science doesn't necessarily mean you need to have a computer science background. It Absolutely. means you, you want to be digital first. So at, at D&B then, who is the data science team? You know, you mentioned product, you mentioned audit. Who else makes up that team? And is it important to mix technical skills with more maybe business skills? Yeah, so we have a quite thriving community of data scientists in DMB. So we have a federated model where data scientists belong to different business units or support units within the DMB. Initially, there were some thoughts of kind of making a centralized unit, but we decided that it's better that they sit closest possible to their domain expertise, which is like the business units. And it has worked quite well. And I think we have right now maybe a community of about 80 data scientists or also data stewards, as we call them. They're more like data domain experts. Uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, all together, I think plus 100 probably. And, and uh, it's a very uh, thriving, uh, several communities who actually interact with one another. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if it was the question you were uh, looking yeah, at. Yeah, but... no, exactly. I think sometimes, Ico, there there's pushback internally in banks and other institutions when people talk about data science, because people get worried that data scientists are going to come in and, and do their job for them. But you mentioned domain knowledge there, domain expertise. That's just as important, if not more important, than the data science skills. So 
you know, mixing data science and building data science tools for people with domain knowledge is really, really important. Absolutely. Totally agree with you. And and also I think that it's really interesting also with the, the promotion of best practice because also a data scientist uh, is not really a concrete set of skills. I mean, we do have data scientists who have a background in statistics or applied mathematics. We have uh, people with informatics background. We have people who have been working in natural sciences, like they used to be physicists or chemists, right? And they jumped into the data science wagon. And so we have this zoo of different backgrounds. And I think it's important also to try to promote and define and promote best practices in terms of also software engineering, like how to write maintainable code that can be understood by the different parts uh, of DMB or, or teams and how to actually streamline machine learning pipelines in the best way possible as to not affect performance and all these kind of things. We kind of been building up uh, with in close collaboration with our IT partners who are in charge of the maintenance of, of our platform, right? Actively engaging on... Uh, what kind of new functionality is needed uh, in order to make our work better. So it's kind of interesting that you mentioned the word data scientist because I think that that role exists, but there is just a mix of people coming from finance or coming from different areas. And uh, we just work together on data, right? Yeah. And I think uh, we need to focus more on, okay, what's the minimum that needs to be in place for someone to actually be able to work with data? and sort of agree on what are the best practices. And those best practices also depend on the context, right? So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting situation here with um, education and uh, building the competence level mm-hmm. of DMB. So do you feel like, you know, at times you're sort of reskilling or upskilling your existing workforce? So in finance, you have the likes of DMB, you know, some of these traditional institutions that have been around for decades. You also now have the fintechs, the Revoluts, the Monzos, the N26 in the Nordics. Klarna is one of the darlings of, of oh, yeah. European global fintech. Mm-hmm. I saw Trustly are about to IPO apparently next next quarter potentially. Are the legacy or the more traditional institutions at more of a disadvantage because you have to do this upscaling and potentially the fintechs that can start from scratch from day one with a digital first mindset with data science. Well, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that because uh, that was the discussion maybe three years ago that all the sort of the main or traditional actors within finance were kind of very worried about their market being eaten up by these new challengers and everything. But it's kind of interesting because after COVID, we have also realized that having this position, like DNB's position in the Nordics as, as a source of stability, but also as a source of to be a responsible actor steering the finance and contributing to the financial situation of the country or the region has proven to be essential uh, for the society to withstand uh, this type of crisis. So we are a bit less scared than mm-hmm. we were like a couple of years ago. And I definitely think that we do make up in the domain knowledge and the understanding of the market and also the sheer market, to be honest, we still have a quite good grip on our customer base and on a role um, in Norway, to say the least. I think that this training and this education has done, it's not, we haven't been really in a huge disadvantage. I think we're just going up. We're going higher, I think. 
And so now we are combining all these experience in different our history and our experience as a bank, and we're just taking it one level up with uh, all the different uh, trainings and uh, building up the knowledge. And I think that DMB has traditionally been already quite digital for almost a decade. So I think we were really well positioned in order to withstand also the crisis that came with um, Corona and uh, COVID. Uh, but not only that, I think that also DMB has a quite privileged position in terms of trust. And I think that's extremely important if you are to succeed in the digital era and in terms of uh, digital financial products and services. I think that's one thing that maybe it's a currency that we have managed to keep. And uh, of course, newcomers need to earn that trust, right? Mm -hmm. So this is also one of the things that uh, makes it imperative for us to go beyond compliance and really be a leading role when it comes to responsible usage of data and AI. And we want to also lead the path. And, and this is also why I want to mention this uh, seminar we, uh, we organized together with academic uh, partners and also the government, uh, some government uh, institutions. Uh, we organized uh, in uh, 2020, last year in January. It was the first seminar on responsible usage of AI and data where we sort of yeah, organized the whole uh, activity with different presentations, but also we had a, a discussion panel with actors from different parts of our, uh, the Norwegian society. And also we had this kind of uh, focus groups where we tried to discuss and find out what is the role that different parties in our society in terms of the government, the academia, industrial partners, what is our role moving forward with AI, right? In yeah. order to make sure that uh, we have a, a positive impact and we try to avoid the negative perils that comes with uh, the wrong usage of AI. So cool. uh, I think that's an example. Yeah. And is it, you know, on that point, is it a multi-party approach to the responsible use of AI? You have governments now in Congress in the US, they're bringing bills around the use of AI, maybe facial recognition, deep fakes, in the UK similar, the European Commission similar. You have Microsoft, you have Amazon, some of the big players, IBM that banned facial recognition technology because of, of potential discrimination based on the usage. You had conferences last year make any papers that were submitted have to go through a screening for you know the societal impact of their work. So each party seems to be doing a, a little bit towards responsible use. Is any one party more responsible than another, ICO, in your opinion? Well, I think that the main rationale behind this activity that we had was to try to understand what our role is. I think we all have an important role to play here, but they are different because we have a different type of impact, right? So we need to play together in order to actually make things happen. And I think as an industry actor, a financial actor, we do have a lot of knowledge and, and uh, experience from using data into different settings. So um, I think we can provide that and we can provide also the knowledge we have also accumulated within uh, AI and how we've been kind of using it and exploring uh, the possibilities of it. And I think that together with uh, governmental institutions and through the usage of things like the sandbox, uh, for um, you know, some financial uh, institutions or uh, products, sorry, we could actually work together on trying to not to stop innovation and doing the good things, but also having a may 
having a stronger confidence and stronger knowledge and understanding on uh, potential consequences, side effects, so that we actually have the safeguards in place in order to move on. And I think that's also one of the key values of DMB is to be bold, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be bold. We want to be uh, responsible and we are curious. This is our three values. And to be bold is also to dare to test things, but of course, in a controlled setting so that we understand how to move on. I think it's really a matter of what type of role we have to play, right? Not about the impact. I think we all need have a huge impact to play and also including the consumers, right? And after this uh, huge scandal with WhatsApp and Facebook, a lot of people have now been um, uh, moving to Signal or Telegram as their main uh, chat uh, channels. And this is, of course, exercising a huge pressure on big tech actors like Facebook, right? on how uh, their approach to privacy, their approach to democracy and on other important aspects. So I think it's not a matter of uh, how much impact. Of course, we all have enormous impact, but it's more like what is our position, what is our role, and how we can work together to make things happen. I think one of the big stories of the end of last year was about Timmy Gebru, Ico, the ethical researcher at Google, that was bringing out a paper about how much carbon emissions training an AI model can take. And, you know, she was talking about in training a general AI model can take as, as much emissions as building and driving a car for a lifetime, as driving five cars for a lifetime. And of course, she was subsequently sacked. So there's a big concern that if the big companies like Google aren't really embodying the ethical use of technology, how can people ever? really trust these others? And how important is it for the future of AI, for the future of AI adoption, that we do have that trust? And that's also a really interesting thing. I'm going to tell you a story about, um, in terms of the, the explainability part, I think there are two two tracks you are touching upon. One is sort of more related to the environment, the carbon footprint, right, of machine learning AI. And another one is sort of more like the societal, ethical consequences, and what the role of explainability in all of that. So I will touch first upon the explainability part. And, and uh, I can tell you a, a story or anecdote. Discussing with some uh, people who are working with digitalization and, and uh, AI technologies at the, the foreign um, direct... Uh, in Norwegian, it's Utlen, it's Direktoratet, but I guess it's the, the foreign office, okay. right? So these are uh, the guys who are uh, handling all the applications for visa, for citizenship, and uh, all these things. And they actually implemented sort of uh, automated processing of applications, but for those applications that were kind of relatively easy to process, for those which the answer was highly likely to be yes. So not the ones that are a bit you know more tricky and, and need more uh, deeper analysis in, in order to conclude. Uh, but, you know, it, the project failed miserably because uh, people are not willing to take that risk. You need to have consent by the applicant saying, well, would you like to actually go through this automated process, which will shorten your application time to blah, 10 times more. It was actually a substantial reduction in time, right? And that this, um, I mean, they explained the whole thing. And um, of course, the text sounds very clear. But um, if you ask an immigrant 
Would you like to trust an algorithm or a machine to actually decide if you will stay in Norway or not, or if you would uh, become a Norwegian citizen or not? I mean, sometimes the, just the risks or the things at stake are so high that no, no human will actually accept that, right? So I think- You saw it in the UK this year as well. Algorithms decided the exam results because there was no exams. And you saw British students out protesting in front of parliament buildings saying, algorithms can't decide my future. There's a, a court case in, in the Netherlands at the moment about how Uber fired three drivers just by an automatic algorithm, and they're taking that to court. So I think explainability, yeah, it's so, so important. So I think it's, it's really, uh, uh, it boils down to the risk and the context in which these things are done. No one questions Google Maps when the, the, you get the recommendation on how to get from point A to B, right? The most you can risk is maybe that you get late uh, because they haven't taken into account the traffic or... So I think context plays an essential role for explainability. I think in some cases, no matter how much you explain it, people will still want humans in the loop in order to make certain decisions. And I think uh, the future for AI, for winning the efficiency race, will be uh, decision support systems. And of course, there are perils there as well, of course. And there's also perils within a human bias, as we know, of course. Yeah. Uh, but all these things taken uh, aside, I think that will be probably one of the, the biggest areas where AI can provide value in terms of uh, increasing efficiency in processes in, and sort of try to provide the right information to the pilot, right? To the human pilot in order to make the best possible decision. So uh, that's on the part of explainability. And the part of climate or um, CO2 emissions, I think companies need to be become wiser in terms of also weighing up the advantages of using heavy uh, deep learning solutions versus other more simpler solutions that also, in addition, could provide a higher level of explainability. And I think that in order to make that trade-off, yeah, they need to understand what are the benefits and what are, are the cons of using it for different purposes. And I think that's the, the frenzy on which uh, people are talking about multi-layer networks that can do magic. You know, these things, I think, need to be taken with a grain of salt because what we are realizing is that we are really sort of amazed by this super narrow, high-performance of certain algorithms in AI. And we are forgetting that, um, you know, when we talk about data science or even talk about AI or machine learning, there's so many different uh, ways of using it and so many different contexts that I think sort of trying to match the right... I mean, you don't want to use a water hose, right? That, like a firefighter water hose to water your garden, so to say. Yeah. So you need to understand in which context makes sense. And uh, about the foot, uh, carbon footprint, I think it's quite interesting that I think in 2020 was uh, one of the highest surges on green bonds. And a lot of the green bonds issuers were IT companies, so big tech. Yeah. Uh, Alphabet has realized there's huge money there on, on making uh, green farms and actually creating uh, sustainable energy sources to feed their data centers. So. I mean, I don't see anything bad with that. I think there's room for innovation in order to avoid uh, more emissions coming from expensive uh, algorithms. And also there have been some ideas also here in Norway uh, of using data centers as 
energy producers because it generates so much additional heat, so residual heat, like that can be used in order to to warm up entire towns. So yeah. so this is an interesting angle. And I think we just need to be very creative and uh, look at where the opportunity is laying. And if something that 2020 has shown us is that actually uh, green finance and green investment actually pays off. And, and if you see the, uh, if you read in Reuters or Bloomberg, you see that all the companies that actually focus on ESG have performed way better than most other companies who have not. So uh, I was only just reading about BlackRock. So BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world, who have said that by 2050, if any of their portfolio clients haven't invested in a, in a carbon negative future, they're going to potentially sell the shares. And BlackRock really are, are being at the future now in this movement to a greener future. And even like so Saudi Aramco, you would think one of the biggest polluters, have set up a huge fund, I think a $50 billion fund or something for sort of green energy. Absolutely. And this is a huge sign. And also in Norway, Stodebrand, which is one of the biggest asset managers, largest asset managers in Norway for pension funds, have cut down Exxon completely as part of their statement for sustainable uh, investment. So this is happening and it's happening quite fast. Also, considering that in the next decade, I think it's going to one of the biggest intergenerational wealth transition from baby boomers to millennials is going to happen, right? And, yeah. and that is, we're talking about the up to $30 trillion transference of funds from generations. And, and um, if you ask millennials, they are absolutely engaged with companies that actually take ESG in, as their compass, their north for yeah. driving business. So it was just one of the largest polls on it sampled, I think, a million of the population around the world. Quite a few wore between 14 and 18 year olds because these people are, are going to be the future. And I think 70% of people said that the climate emergency is indeed an emergency. So definitely it's moving in that direction, I go. Are you in any way fearful that the COVID-19 pandemic has paralyzed some companies and has put the climate emergency from maybe front of mind to say, let me get through this in the next two to three years and in 2025 my focus on that are you slightly fearful of that or do you think we've really turned a corner i was more fearful last year i think and uh, this year after looking at the performance for uh, of companies who have a high esg profile i come to think that it's not going to be less important but that it's going to be a lot of more due diligence towards uh, integrating all these three it's not going to be only environmental but it's going to be a close uh, interconnection between environment, society, and governance. Because if something that COVID has taught us is how interconnected they are. So I think mm -hmm. that it's going to be moving uh, further. There's going to be maybe uh, more incorporation of societal parts because obviously COVID has uh, exposed all the weaknesses and the weak links on how we have rigged up our society and, and uh, our financial structure, right? So I think it's going to be a combination where society is going to also take a huge uh, lift. I actually do not think that, that the climate is going to suffer. I, I think it's going to be a good uh, mix, or at least I'm hoping for that. And I think that's where also uh, AI and data technologies can actually have a huge impact 
on pushing that agenda because there's going to be a lot of greenwashing. There's going to be a lot of uh, ESG washing yeah. uh, because of how good a lot of these investments are doing. Yeah. And I think uh, then the requirements for, for due diligence and uh, reporting are going to be higher. They are not there yet, but they're going to come. And when they come, we need to be ready to actually just, you know, be able to show the evidence on um, why these companies are actually, you know, having a high ESG score and why they are not. And also connect that also to their performance. So I think AI and data technologies are going to be essential component on that process. Yeah. And I, and I think holding companies accountable. So there's no shortage of companies I go talking about their initiatives. You know, Microsoft has said 2030 carbon negative. We've taken back out any carbon we've emitted since 1975. Amazon is saying they'll do the same thing by 2040. You know, companies are, I guess, have a trajectory towards this, but we do need to hold them accountable to that and ensure it's not greenwashing, as you say. Absolutely. And I think that it's a difficult problem because a lot of the ESG data that exists for today is self-reporting. But there are other ways to actually find this data, to crowdsource this data or to collect it from public sources and try to analyze it. So there are different possibilities. And I think the natural language processing technology is going to play a very important role in the processing and analysis of backing information and evidence, also together with geographical Earth data. And talking about NLP and... We can't talk too much without referring to COVID-19 in, in the year 2021, I hope. But I saw that it was actually a Canadian AI startup called Blue Dot, I believe, that first detected the coronavirus in, in December 31st, 2019. So nine days before the WHO ever alerted anybody, Blue Dot scoured digital media using NLP algorithms. They scoured airline information, land information, GPS information and could identify that there was a, a novel disease or a novel coronavirus. So again, there is unbelievable applications for these technologies. Absolutely. So I, so I think I go, there'll definitely be people watching, again, maybe in their own houses that are thinking, this is all fascinating, this is all amazing. There's all these amazing you know, business initiatives, business-to-business -business innovations. Can you talk a little about consumer technology, maybe using artificial intelligence, within it that, that some people can go online and find some of these things absolutely so i think the consumer has a, an uh, important role to play in uh, the direction in which uh, ai products and the services are going to move forward i think that by giving a clear message of what kind of things we are okay with and what kind of things we're not okay with what kind of things will help us in, in now with you know um facing all this uh, global crisis right I think that will give a signal or a message to big tech and, and innovation companies in order to move in the right direction. So a uh, first thing to do is actually to learn about a bit about AI. What is it and how? Um, what kind of products uh, am I using using AI and um, how does it work? I mean, that's, you don't have to be a scientist or technologist in order to understand the basics on AI. And I think once you have that understanding, then you will probably start asking questions right? Which is the most important thing. But how does this going to affect my family or, or my privacy or, or my life in general, right? How is this going to affect the society or democracy? I think to be critical towards technology, this is one thing. But also, there are uh, quite exciting areas where, as a consumer, we can give this green light and, and support 
the industry. For instance, energy is a, an interesting arena where AI is playing a, an increasingly important role in terms of efficiency. You could nowadays there is much more mature IoT systems which actually are more secure and are as permissible as maybe they were like uh, 10 years ago where they had really weak security protocols. Now it has, the domain has matured more. So now you're able to actually understand better the energy consumption patterns of your house. That can actually help you to, to work towards reducing your, your uh, energy consumption in smart ways, right? Also time of the day where you should do certain activities and all this can actually relatively be automated without having any like side effects in terms of, of privacy or as long as you know what you're doing and uh, you're careful. I think that area is actually quite interesting uh, from a consumer perspective. Of course, this is dependent on that you have the access to the right infrastructure and, and your electricity provider provides you with that data. But uh, this is happening at least in Norway. And uh, I think uh, this is a good way to actually reduce your footprint, cardboard footprint. Now it's also, there's more AI coming on in terms of consumer patterns, right? And try to give a better understanding to the consumer of their uh, footprint, depending on the things that they consume and the activities they use. And, and uh, all these different apps, they're coming. They're maybe not completely here yet, but I think by giving the, the right signal and saying, wow, we want this, this is good for us. I think you, um, as a consumer, you're giving the, the right signal and sort of uh, promoting this kind of usage of AI. Yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, and hopefully they're designed ethically as well, I feel, that, that ethics are at the center of that. I think linking both conversations together, any wearable that Sony now brings out is scanned for ethical concerns before it actually goes to the market. So people should really, you know, embrace these technologies. A movie I watched recently was The Social Dilemma. Have you seen The Social Dilemma? Yes, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of uh, Tristan and yeah. uh, and the work they're doing with this uh, nonprofit for ethical technology. So, yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic. It's really made in, in a public-friendly way. I mean, it, it really takes all the jargon outside of the, the discussion and just, you know, tells you exactly you know, in layman terms, what is happening, right? And it's a call, um, it's a refreshing way to see things, uh, especially if you're a specialist and you have been kind of diving into these problems for so long as a technologist to be able to actually see this and to see that someone has, has reached out to the general public with this kind of information in a way that is, is possible for them to grasp and, and yeah. to really have a realize what is happening. I think that was a, a great thing. And I guess for our listeners out there that maybe enjoyed that documentary, do you have any other recommendations? Iko, you, you mentioned you like Tristan Harris. Are there any other opinion leaders within the field that, that you recommend people check out? Wow, yeah. Uh, uh, there are just too many, I would say. I mean, uh, luckily, there are a lot of thought leaders in this area. Yeah, I I think that, the, um, for instance, the work that, uh, of course, the ex-ethicists of Google have done in terms of, of the research on the impact of AI algorithms. I think that's a really good place to start on because it really shows uh, um, how important it is to actually understand at least the basics of AI and how it affects society because then that will help us to take a stand on it. Yeah. So definitely think that 
I mean, yeah, there's too many people that I have in my head, so I cannot really come up with the. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll write some down on a blog, maybe, to, to yeah. people. Uh, one thing I'm excited for this year, there's, there's a new accelerator in Sweden, kind of based in the Nordics, called the Norskin Foundation. And they've taken sort of the motto of Y Combinator. Y Combinator wants to invest in startups that will have a billion dollar valuation. Whereas the Norskin Foundation wants to invest in startups that have the potential to um, help one billion people in the world. I think it's a nice kind of motto. And I'm not sure will it be business to business or business to consumer sort of innovations. But it's definitely, again, something that, that people should keep an eye on. And what is the latest innovation and, and can they really utilize any of this tech? Absolutely. And I think this is also a focus on society, right? So there's a very strong focus on society. And then profit will come side to it, but it will not be more important. It will be sort of, it will be a reflection on the impact, direct impact that is exercised on people. Yeah. So I guess coming full circle again, we're talking profit, we're talking about impact. So let's finish off DNB Bank. You know, obviously you're a for-profit institution, but you have you definitely have an ethical conscience. You've gone through a three-year roadmap. Based on our conversation at the start, it's all been very, very successful, very promising, very well equipped. What does the next three years look like? Yeah, I think the next is, is really to take off fully, I think. And we are starting to kind of, you know, swing our wings and try to take our, our different uh, solutions out there. But I think that the challenges coming next is to, of course, work on uh, stabilizing, helping stabilizing the economy and uh, take us uh, through the crisis, of course. And I think that there are many data and uh, AI initiatives that are working towards that. And also to have a closer contact and understanding of our customers through AI, that's going to be like our biggest race. And doing it and exploring the possibilities of interaction and increasing the the quality of the service in an ethical way and trying to push up these possibilities and still do it in a responsible way. And for that, we need information. We need knowledge and we need to produce this knowledge and we need to experiment. And I think that is basically the next big step for us to get all the juice out of AI, but at the same time, understand what are the consequences so that we, we can do things responsibly. So I think that's going to be our upcoming challenge yeah i think if the last 15 or so months has, has taught us anything i go it's that the future is not an easy thing to predict but uh certainly we should you know cast our gaze forward and as you said you know squeeze the juice out of ai experiment discover ethically and responsibly and the innovations the possibilities thereafter are pretty endless absolutely i totally agree with you Aiko, <laughs> <laughs> is there anything you'd like to, to get out before we finish off the episode well, I just think that uh, sort of uh, when you speak of ethics of AI, I think they are uh, AI is just an instrument like anything. It's just a tool. And I think you can do harm and you can do wonderful things. And, and uh, at the end of the day, when you speak about ESG, it's just the embodiment of, of all the good things that you could do with AI, like climate and uh, energy technology. Uh, and at the same time, the embodiment of, of governance in society is... Do not do harm. Think of the consequences of of uh, viral effects of algorithms, and uh, sometimes just stop and say, "Well, we're not going to do it, right?" So yeah. it's everything. <laughs> Excellent, a brilliant mission statement. Yes. Iko, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you so much, Sean. 
and best of luck with all your projects and stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. For more Future Sense content and to watch all episodes on demand, visit alter.com forward slash Future Says. We'll see you again next time.